Madam needs to get herself <coughs> ready. Hello and welcome to another episode of Political Dregs. I'm Hamish Hunter and we are joined by our regular panellists, the Defund the BBC campaigner Calvin Robinson, businessman and entrepreneur Amir Sajadi, and former Conservative councillor and GLA candidate Joel Davidson. We're also joined today by a very special guest, Claire Fox. Claire is a writer and broadcaster who is a member of the Revolutionary Communist Party and co-publisher of the magazine Living Marxism, which eventually became the online magazine Spiked. Claire's now the director of the Academy of Ideas, was a regular panellist on the BBC Radio 4's Moral Maze programme, and in 2019 was elected as a Brexit Party MEP. MEP. What, Claire, welcome to Political Dregs and thank you for joining us. It's great to be here, thanks. I want to talk about Brexit because you're a woman from the left, as I said, you used to be in the Revolutionary Communist Party. And I think a lot of the discourse that we have seen in this country, particularly after the referendum, actually, has couched Brexit in terms of it being a right wing uh, sort of project. And I wanted just to hear your thoughts as someone from the left on, on, on the left wing case for leaving the European Union. I think it's always been a democratic case that people on the left and right could agree on. But, you know, historically, people like Peter Shaw and Tony Benn from the Labour Party were associated with arguing very strongly at that democratic case for leaving the European Union. And the European Union was, as uh, those of us who voted to leave will know, not anti-Europe, not xenophobic, not in any way Little Englander. Uh, uh, project, uh, it, you know, to say you wanted to leave that uh, top-down organisation was a way of saying that you wanted to assert national sovereignty. And actually, lots of people went with that. And, you know, you have to be able to hold your political leaders to account. And you can't when you don't vote for them. And we don't vote for the people who run things in Brussels. So uh, for me, the shocker was not that there was you know, that I was on the left and I wanted to leave the European Union. The shock was that many of my peers on the left, who I know were Eurosceptic, decided, sadly, to bottle it when it came to a referendum. And, of course, Jeremy Corbyn is the most well-known of those because Jeremy Corbyn and I have disagreed on many things over the years. But one thing that we have always agreed on was the EU as an anti-democratic project. So I was, you know, you'd think that if you're heading up the Labour Party when you get a referendum to ask whether you'd leave, that he would lead at least an open public debate in the Labour Party about why it would be good to to um, uh, get out and assert a blow for democracy. But he so why is that tradition on the left, and you mentioned Peter Shaw and others, Tony Benn, why is that disappeared or why, why did it seemingly, you know, not make its presence felt during the referendum and afterwards? Well, you've got to remember that what's also surprising is that the Eurosceptic tradition associated with the Conservative Party and the right had disappeared. I mean, I, you know, even if there was a caricature that there was a left-wing kind of Remain world and a right-wing Brexit world, it wasn't true, was it? The whole, every single establishment party argued for remain, including the Conservatives. 
So all of those establishment parties, it seems to me, chose to present leaving the EU as then a kind of dodgy right wing venture with hints of dark undersides of, you know, xenophobia, far right. It wasn't just right wing, was it? It was kind of like the far right. How many times did people talk about 1930s Nazis on the rise and so on? By the time you'd finished, you so of course for a lot of people on the left, but actually a lot of conservatives, a lot of people in all of the parties felt that somehow there was something a bit dodgy. There's undoubtedly been also, you know, this is a mixed sort of story, which is the emergence of UKIP um, prior to, you know, the referendum being called, that had had a great influence on, and probably did have an influence on, on, on David Cameron's decision to hold the referendum. They were associated with a right-leaning kind of populist uh, movement led by, you know, Nigel Farage, who has a certain reputation and so on and so forth. And I, I think actually that, that, that all that UKIP was, was it collected together the grievances of many ordinary people, presented them, and but then that became a sort of like out of control uh, organisation, bottom up, that frightened the life out of most mainstream Tories. Mm. So I just think it's, you know, the bemusement that you have at the left having abandoned uh, uh, Euroscepticism, my bemusement was that every Eurosceptic Tory I have ever known lectured me about why we needed to remain in the EU during the build-up to the referendum. We shouldn't forget that. I mean, that yeah. was a remarkable turnaround for me. I couldn't get over it. Yes, so I in other words, it became an establishment versus rank and file of all parties. I think that's right. And I think a lot of people um, misjudged UKIP and its supporters. I remember, I can't remember exactly when it was, but it must have been around 2010, seeing an interview with dear old Neil Kinnock. And it was put to him that some of some Labour voters might vote UKIP. And I remember very clearly him saying, oh, well, maybe one or two, but you know, it's mostly Tories. And I sort of chuckled to myself because, of course, they've the ones electorally that have did the real damage to Labour and you know, Cameron probably stemmed the tide by, by doing what he did. I find it fascinating though in the post-Corbyn world when a lot of people I know got very excited that a proper left-winger was now in, in the leadership of the Labour Party and, and they completely backed Corbyn on all these sorts of things and I would say to them well what about Brexit because you know Forget what Corbyn is saying now, which is a bit of a fudge, but you know, your heroes, I would say to these people like Corbyn or Tony Benn, very clear about being Eurosceptic, and they would always sort of fudge the answer. And so I find that I've always found that quite quite interesting. Um, did you feel that people on the left judged you when not only for voting for Brexit, but actually when you took a step further and agreed to become a Brexit Party MEP? Yeah, I mean, I, do, I don't think I know. I mean, <laughs> they, they made it very clear. Um, there was there was sort of three phases. Um, just, you know, when it became apparent that I was... I, I didn't think it was that controversial to say that I was going to vote to leave the European Union, but it wasn't the most important aspect of my public persona. I, it was kind of, we, we were all asked, weren't we? And I said, <coughs> sorry, I hadn't been a big campaigner. I wanted to leave, but I wasn't one of the kind of big names associated. 
But when it when it became sort of that I said I was going to vote, the 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 horror with which I was treated, and um, uh, Calvin will know the education world. Uh, actually, at the time of the referendum, the actual dates, there was a big education festival going on. And on the day of the vote, when, which I was at, because as the Academy of Ideas, we were putting on a series of debates. You'd be amused to hear that one of the main lectures we put on for six formers, because we put on some events for them, was AC Grayling talking about the history of democracy. <laughs> All that day, every teacher, every educator, every educational journalist I met, who had about this time found out I was going to vote leave, um, kind of ribbed me all day you know kind of like oh my god you've gone to the dark side but we'll forgive you tomorrow claire right this was the kind of notion and the assumption was that all right-minded people in education and uh, i remember this very well on the night on then you know after the vote was over and went back to the hotel and i was with some colleagues who i knew were leavers they bumped into a group of uh, geordie teachers who were having a drink in the bar and when they kind of raised the Brexit thing, because it was on the telly, the results coming in, they all said they didn't want to talk about it. And they basically said that they were, you know, they, they wouldn't say what way they voted. The next morning, they ran up and said, we did it. <laughs> but they hadn't been able to admit that. I then went and spoke at this event that I was at. And all of these colleagues who'd been making fun of me basically attacked me. I mean, attacked me and said you have i mean people i've known for years said to me you have enabled fascism to grow in this country you know you have allowed people to crawl out from under the rocks i mean and we were at a very posh private school so it had a particular <laughs> irony that i was being lectured by private school teachers about how i'd allowed fascism to rise and how the knuckle draggers were on the on the march it was a shock I enjoyed the day, of course, because um, Leave had won. But anyway, so that was first phase. Second phase was when I realised, I just then thought I'd go back to normal life, Brexit would happen. And of course, within a few weeks, in then months, it became apparent that that wasn't going to happen. And some of the most vitriolic, vicious, anti-working class and anti um, kind of othering of a whole millions of people started to happen and as a public commentator i i got annoyed and i started to speak about that and you know kind of make a bit of a focus of that and then of course when i thought that democracy was about to be betrayed which i did i made the 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 i I'd never wanted to be an elected politician i i, I to be honest with you, I probably was worried about Farage, thought, you know, this was all the rest of it. Like, I certainly wouldn't have voted for UKIP, despite understanding its popularity. And I got asked to stand, and I really didn't want to do it. I didn't, I just didn't want to do it. I knew it would ruin my career is overstating it, but it would ruin whatever kind of liberal intelligence. Anyway, that's what happened. I stood because I genuinely believed that if Brexit had been sold out, that there would be a proper nasty backlash. It would destroy faith in democracy. And once you remove the ballot box as an option for people and you tell them that they're dirt and you can ignore them, bad things happen. So I also knew that I went and talked to everyone on the left about the European elections and said, why don't we stand a slate? Everybody said, let's have 17 committee meetings. I knew it was never going to happen. I then decided to do it. And when you say, how was I treated? I was basically kicked out of polite liberal society. 
mm. broadly yeah. speaking. That's, I think a lot of us have the have the same experience, and uh, you know, I certainly have had conversations with people uh, who are shocked that uh, when I say that I voted to leave. What you said, um, finally, just one thing I want I want to pick up, which is really interesting. You said this sort of demonization of of the working class and this sort of othering. When um, a lot of that. I think has come from the liberal or, or, or sort of champagne socialist left. Has the left really lost its way uh, in this country? We've, um, you know, we've 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 got a situation where, without wanting to engage in too much of stereotypes, got quite wealthy Islington, Camden uh, lefties who are have a sort of lefty liberal outlook and actually sort of sneer at the people that they're supposed to represent is that something that you think is a problem with the left or do you see a bit of more of a is there a positive is, is there something a bit positive that we can see um in the future i think that you're talking about a particular version of the labor party as it's emerged which has lost its roots it's lost its labor roots i mean and therefore it's not accountable to those labor roots so i mean it wouldn't you know, it kind of looks out on the working class and, and kind of with a certain amount of horror. They're not the kind of people that understand safe faces. They've never heard of the term turf. You know, they're kind of unfamiliar with the lingo of the culture wars and so on and so forth. These things are deep in the roots now of a, of a Labour Party that's really being consumed by identity politics in many ways, but sees itself, of course, as fighting on the side of the oppressed. But the the way that they've understood the oppressed is in a very narrow way of people who need to be rescued or protected or saved. You've also got, a, I think, lots of those well-meaning Labour members, and it's not just, I mean, if, you know, the Labour Party isn't the left, but, but when you talk about champagne socialists and so on, their, their attitude to the working class is very much one that, I mean, they're, they're very pro, pro the working class, but they see the working class as kind of hapless, helpless people who need to be looked after. I mean, it's it's got a sort of, uh, a condescension to it you know it's kind of like every time you talk about the working class people will say they they mean poor people and of course working class people aren't necessarily poor i mean they're not well off but they're, they you know they're working people you know as a in other words they take a particularly uh, and you know let's be honest there are there are sections of society that are very badly done to and and really you know, can barely live on, on on the welfare payments that they get and really have a miserable existence. But that's a small percentage of the population of the UK. And that's what the Labour Party think the working class is, right? Well, the working class is millions and millions of people, right? Like the majority of people in the country. But it's not like a sociological thing. And so they just don't understand. So there's all sorts of, I mean, people have written at great length, and I think it's right about place, about the importance of place, you know, underestimating the importance of community, underestimating certain or the imposition of a set of values that nobody knows what you're talking about when they're imposed from top down in terms of cultural issues. All of these things have really led to a chasm between the, 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 the left and, and the mass of people. But I insist on saying this to you, that it's a crisis of political parties, not of the left entirely, because you've got to remember that the the Conservative Party, when then they uh, the referendum happened, uh, Brexit happened, also indicated that it had lost sense of what the nation thought, right? So for three years, 
there was a Conservative Party that basically also othered the ordinary people. So they they did it in a different way. They sort of said, oh, if you remember what happened was Theresa May, we, we realise now that that government, that Conservative government, were never going to deliver Brexit in any meaningful way. But what they did do, and they made a fuss of, was introducing the hostile environment policy. And there's no doubt about it. What they thought was, well, all those people who voted leave, really, they're just all racist. If we bring out the hostile environment policy, that'll shut them up and keep them happy. That's the kind of attitude, you know what I mean? We'll give them a few chink. You know, they, in other words, they didn't understand that the assertion of sovereignty and taking back control meant that people wanted to be taken seriously as citizens, to be taken seriously as political agents of people who were history makers. And so I, I just want to say to you that if it had just been a crisis of the Labour Party, there wouldn't have been a crisis of politics. But there was a much deeper problem than the Labour Party going off the rails. It was both and all, I mean, forget the Lib Dems, because what can you say? But I mean, <laughs> you, 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 you are talking about the emergence of a technocratic elite. The political parties were hollowed out of their roots at all levels. So nobody represented anybody anymore. And I, I think there's been a shakeup since then. And I, I think that's probably, you know, that's we can see that from the way that Boris Johnson, you know, became the leader of the Tory party on the back of that kind of, you know, knowledge that you had to build a new kind of Tory party and the breaking of the red wall in the last general election where ordinary working people who never, who hate the Tories as a sort of instinct and historically decided that if they could use the Tory party to get Brexit done, they would, you know, yeah. hold their nose and do it. They didn't become conservatives overnight. But they, they, but they were prepared to use whatever means were necessary to them, as it were, to, 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 to deliver what they wanted, their democratic wishes. Uh, well, that's been very, lots of things to think about there. Thank you, Claire. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye, Claire. Bye. Thank you. Bye, Claire. Ask an interesting question about. Um, You're going to ask a question. No, no, about, the 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 <laughs> about freedom, the free trade between Canada, America, uh, not Canada, New Zealand, Australia. Yeah. If you want that, go to the FT web webcast. I just do. We just do cock gags and talk about right wing things. We do. Well, I do the cock.